Welcome to the Career Thrivers Podcast, where we're not just barely surviving in our careers, but we are boldly thriving as leaders. I'm your host, Brittany N. Cole, keynote speaker, author, CEO, and your partner in growth. I've spent over the past decade teaching leaders to develop, retain, and advance in their career and with their workforce. And today, I'm here to guide you on your journey. Here at Career Thrivers, we believe that every experience is an opportunity for continuous improvement. And guess what? You're in the driver's seat of that growth. You're the master of your destiny and the architect of your own success. So whether you're a business leader or a career professional, you are in the right place. Are you ready for this? I'm so excited to be here with you. This season, we're gonna be exploring this theme of owning your power. And I firmly believe in the value of ownership and owning your power, not only in your career, but also in your life. We'll delve into thought-provoking discussions, learn from industry leaders, and equip ourselves with the tools and strategies to thrive in our careers. So buckle up, Thrivers, as we gear up to take your leadership skills to the next level. Hey Thriver, welcome back to the Career Thrivers podcast. Now, today I'm gonna let you in to an exclusive C-suite conversation. That's right, I had the opportunity to sit down with Kate Burke, the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief Financial Officer of Alliance Bernstein. She joined me for a conversation that was exclusive for our Rise and Thrive Advancing Women Leaders program. Now, this is a coaching program and an in-person learning experience for emerging women leaders. And Kate came in to talk about career pivots that led her to the C-suite. Check out this conversation. So I'm excited uh, to introduce Kate. Uh, We've talked a little bit about Kate joining us, but she, of course, is the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer at Alliance Bernstein. And so about a month ago, I had an opportunity to emcee an event called uh, Young, Young Enterprising Women. And Kate shared her story. We were actually at Alliance Bernstein, and I was just so moved by the transparency and the connectedness of her career pivots and just being really intentional in owning her power across her career that has led her to the C-suite. So we've been talking a lot about owning your career development, really taking an intentional intentional approach to how you communicate your story, which is our session that we had just wrapped up. And so I want to share a little bit more about Kate. She's responsible for overseeing the corporate functions of the firm, including corporate communications, diversity, equity, and inclusion, corporate citizenship, finance, global technology, operations, human capital, and administrative services are all a part of her responsibilities as well as the strategy. She was previously the head of Bernstein's private wealth. She was the chief administrative officer. And prior to that, she headed up human capital as a chief talent officer. She has more than two decades of financial services and consulting industry experience. She joined Bernstein Research in 2004 in institutional sales. Again, shout out to our salespeople in here. I'm a former salesperson, so can always relate to that. Where she rose to senior vice president and managing director, overseeing institutional sales teams in the Midwest, New York, and Canada. Prior to joining the firm, She was a manager at A.T. Kearney, where she led client cross-divisional organizational development programs. She holds a B.A. in economics from the College of Holy Cross and an M.B.A. from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. She's been named to American Bankers 100 Most Powerful Women in Banking and Finance for 2021 and 2022. Nashville Post's 2021 Most Powerful Women in Nashville, as well as their charge leaders in finance for 2021, 2022, and 2023, and was the recent Markets Media Positive Impact Award um, awardee. She's been recognized, and I'm quoting here, as a woman who not only excels at her day job, but goes above and beyond in terms of giving back and making a difference. She's been featured in publications like the Wall Street Journal, Institutional Investor, Insider Financial Planning, and Oprah Magazine. So welcome (laughs) to the stage, Kate Burke. 
That was quite the introduction, I have to say. Um, thank you all for having me and taking the time out to, to have these conversations. I think I'm excited to see all of you in the room. Um, and I think what you'll hear me talk about a little bit today is just the important in investing in yourself. And that is clearly what you all are doing here today by being in this room and taking the time out of your busy lives to think about how can I continue to advance and excel my and, and excel in my career going forward. So I'll give you a little bit of backdrop. And then Brittany and I, I think, are going to have a little chat, and then we'll do some Q&A with all of you, and answer I'll answer whatever I can uh, in terms of, of what's gotten me here. But if you, if you go back to the very beginning, and if you'll indulge me in this, you know, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. It was a town of about 70,000 people. And there was two industries in my town, IBM and the Mayo Clinic, which is a hospital. And so you were either in those two or in the service industries supporting one of those two. And so growing up, those were sort of the career paths that were um, obvious to me. But I had this interest in finance and, and it really stemmed from an early age, you know, my dad, having five children, was trying to save for us all to go to help us go to college. And so he started to invest. And I just got really interested. And we would have conversations. He, he was a physician. So he was a self-taught investor. And we used to have conversations about the markets. And it really piqued my interest. So I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be in banking. So I went to the local banks for one of my summer jobs and applied and became a teller because that was my entree into banking in Rochester, Minnesota. But that's all that that's what there was. And I didn't really know what I didn't know, except I knew I didn't know a lot. Um, and I think that's part of over time where I got really comfortable, which was like I was aware of what I didn't know needed to learn it, recognize I didn't know a lot, and got really comfortable at starting to ask questions and using the power of inquiry to really be able to broaden my knowledge and my skill set over time. I pivoted to go to college, went to liberal arts uh, college, studied economics, started to understand a little bit more about the financial world. But my first job out of college was working for a not-for-profit because I also wanted to give back to the world where I was making $6,000 a year and nannying part-time so I could do the, the work I wanted to do um, in, in the philanthropic world. And started networking, though, because while I was out in uh, the New York area, I still didn't really have any contacts in the investment community world of New York City. I wasn't raised there. I didn't know people. Some of my friends had gotten jobs in the industry, but that seemed to be through connections. And so I started networking with almost anyone who would talk to me. And I ultimately got a job doing investor relations as an associate for Tommy Hilfiger because I d had a meeting with my aunt's best friend so I could talk to her husband who was a commodities trader because I, I thought I wanted to do fixed income trading. And in talking to her, she was at Tommy Hilfiger and she said, you don't want to do that. You are not, that's, trading is not your thing. You, you're a good writer. You've done that. Because part of my job in the not-for-profit was writing. Um, she's like, you should take that, take your economic experience, do investor relations, and come work for Tommy Hilfiger. It'll be a lot of fun. Right? And that was like a pivot for me. I, I didn't know it. It wasn't what I was looking for. But it was just in these early stages of trying to get my foot into the door and be open to talking to pretty much anyone who would meet with me about potential careers that started me down this role in this role of investor relations. I worked for an amazing woman uh, who gave me a ton of breath. Uh, I had a tremendous amount of access to our CFO, COO, our CEO, Tommy, at that time, which was kind of incredible being like 22, while Tommy was like this huge rising fashion brand. It was really fun. I was the only person that dressed like this in my 20s at Tommy Hilfiger while everybody else was in like sweatpants and like jeans and skateboarding down the hall. So I was super not cool. Um, but, but, but it was really fun. And I got to get exposed really early to a ton of things I didn't know really, and, and had to learn a lot about what it was to invest in a public company and why, how people made their investment decisions and how we told the Tommy Hilfiger story to the potential investment community. And I kind of fell in love with investing, right? Which I already knew I loved, but it was really wonderful learning and understanding how investors were making those decisions. 
Knowing that I still didn't know a lot, I made a decision to pursue my MBA at Kellogg. Um, it was a choice, too. They, I thought about going part-time, but I said, no, I really want to immerse myself, invest in myself early in my career, went and ha had my MBA, um, majored in finance and marketing, and was graduating and was trying to make a decision between consulting because I sort of in my mind had these two potential career paths. One was like, I want to run a company someday. I just don't know what it is. I like, I love the idea of running a business and being a leader. And I don't know whether it was going to be entrepreneurial or what, but I knew I needed to understand more about how companies operated. Or I wanted to be in finance and like be in the markets every day talking about equity uh, and totally two different paths. So I ended up choosing the consulting path because it was a personal decision. I was getting married. My husband had a job in Cleveland. And guess what? Not a lot of financial industry in Cleveland. So I said, I'm going to go down the consulting route. And it was fantastic because it did give me this, again, tremendous opportunity to learn. And that's what you will hear in every pivot of my career along the way. There was an intentionality about what I was going in in that job to learn what I could contribute and how I could grow so that I would have a broader set of skill sets that I knew would enable me to be ideally successful in whatever ventures I was going to have over the course of my life without a set path. And I promise you, no one would have said, how do you become a CFO? Follow Kate's path. It's a very non-traditional path that got me here. It's like not what you would expect anyone to really do. Did that, did management consulting, learned, worked in healthcare, automotive, you know, co constantly was a young woman walking into predominantly male-oriented industries and had to pretend, I, well, pretend is not the right word. I had structure and frameworks to apply to the problems we were going into solve, but in reality, I was never the subject matter expert in the room. There was Oh, I was always, always in the room with people who knew more than I did about the problems we had to solve. My job was to help frame and provide the structure to get to good outcomes and then help them learn how to execute it. Hugely valuable skill. I still use it to this day. It's one of the things that's been, probably been the hallmark of my career has been recognizing that in almost any circumstance or any question I'm trying to solve, there will be someone in the room who knows more than I do about the topic, who's confident in what they're doing, is the subject matter expert, and my best way to get us to a good conclusion is to ask the right questions and to listen to them and understand what they are thinking to help me get to the right outcomes and help them frame a path forward. So took that, my husband and I eventually moved to New York, because uh, he really wanted to live there. Uh, I'd already lived there once, but it was really important to him. We moved, and then all of a sudden I was in the world of finance again. Everyone around me I knew was in finance, and I wanted to make a pivot, because I was like, I've learned a lot uh, on the consulting side and the management side, but I love the markets, and that's when I moved to Bernstein Research. And I was so impressed with Bernstein Research because it is filled with subject matter experts galore. Like every day I was learning something about a new industry, new investment strategy. It, was, it has been an amazing um, career and opportunity because, again, it was constant learning every day. But over time, I did sales. That was a skill set I didn't have. I remember the first time I had to do a cold call after like six months of training and literally was leaving message after message because it was still when you called. And um, a client eventually answered and I panicked so much I hung up <laughs> because I was so like not prepared to actually do then the pitch that I had been practicing for like six months. It was terribly embarrassing. I sit in an open floor plan so like I thought for sure, I mean, I'm sure I turned beet red. I probably am turning even red now thinking about it. I thought for sure my colleagues, again, mostly male, would look at me and be like, you're an idiot. Thankfully, no one picked up on it. And I took a deep breath and I centered myself again. And I didn't call that person back because that would have been awkward if you had my phone number. I did eventually call him back later. But I started again and I picked up and eventually... Cold calling and sales was one of the fav my favorite things to do, but it was really hard in the moment to get over the fear of putting myself out on the line and getting really comfortable with it. And so leaning into that fear, owning it, being comfortable with it, knowing you're going to have that adrenaline in your chest as you're making that call, 
and then being like, how do you capitalize on it was a really important learning experience for me. And it was what ultimately helped me get really comfortable in the concept of sales. So now you see I have management experience, some consulting frameworks to apply. I now have sales. Well, what, what, what should be next? Well, how about actually managing people? And I had worked in consulting for someone who was an amazing, um, he's really, really smart. Uh, he was incredibly driven and he worked me to the bone. And like, just never, I can never meet his, his um, expectations. Or when you did, you're like nirvana kind of moment. And so I was like, that's how you motivate and inspire people is just to be really difficult and set really high standards. Um, that is actually not a good management technique. <laughs> and so I went to work. So I went into a manager role where I was managing peers who like one day I was like, hey, we're buddies. The next day I was like, I have a high bar. And thankfully, um, one of my friends was like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. Like, you're like, get it together, Kate. This is not going to really work for you. Like, you got to learn how to motivate a team. And like, you know what it was like to be a salesperson. Like, your job is to help us be better. And that was a really important pivot for me to be like, you're right. I have to change myself as a manager, not to make the people working for me follow what would motivate me or what I would have uh, done well under or the structure that I would like them to have. I need to adjust my management style to the individual and recognize that the individual who I'm working, who's working with me is incredibly capable, has a lot of potential of what they're going to deliver against, and my only job is helping that path to their success be better. And that was a major pivot for me from a leadership and management perspective, which was like, it's not on the person that is working for me to adjust, it's on me to adjust and bring out their best. And that really became, I think, a hallmark of my career because again, it goes back to this question of knowing the person, learning from them, understanding who they are, trying to motivate them. Uh, from there, I thought for sure my next job was going to be like a senior sales leadership role, like running a whole national sales team, Was thought I was on the path for that. Um, and at, at, during that time, I got involved with other things in the broader Alliance Bernstein organization, working on culture projects, other elements that were important to me um, in terms of working for a firm I could be proud of. I got to know some of the senior leaders, the CEO at the time and the COO, um, and one day the COO stopped by as I, as I was writing year-end reviews. And I was like, hey, I have a proposition for you. And I was like, uh-oh. He said, what do you think about becoming head of human capital? And I said, what are you talking about? I was like, no, I'd have zero. I'm like, that's, I'm, I'm a salesperson. I'm a revenue generator. Like, why would I want to move into human capital? And he said, because you're going to learn, it was, this then became over an extended conversation. I didn't say yes right away, which surprised him. It actually took me about a week to get comfortable with this career pivot. Um, and he was surprised I didn't just jump immediately at the chance. But I really did have to think through for myself the difference of being a revenue generator versus, again, trying to be a leader for an enterprise and how that would be different. But it was the best career move I made, and he was right in that he said, you're going to learn everything there is to know about the people in this organization and how to run this, biz and how to run this business. We're a people-intensive business. Everything we do is around developing and retaining talent. This is your entree into understanding the business better than anything. And that proved to be the case. Um, Again, circumstances unfold where then we had a CEO transition. Seth Bernstein, my current CEO, came in. Um, and I thought, he's going to fire me and bring in someone he likes. Like, you know, like you have to partner well with the CEO. Um, and the first time I met with him, he, I like came in with my list of like all the things he needed to do. And he spent the first half hour talking about my personal life. I'm a mother of four, who I like love four. I've had four, I have four children. How do I balance that? What's going on? And I was like, who is this person? How, like, how is he going to run this organization? Like, I got a bunch of things he has to do. But it was like an amazing point of like also leadership of saying, we're going to get to all of that eventually, but I want to know the people I'm going to work with. And I know I'm coming into an uncomfortable situation. And so getting to know who you are and what motivates you is incredibly important. Um, and it ended up being a fabulous relationship that I still have. I mean, obviously, I have it with him today because working with him um, has enabled me to move then from 
the human capital role, eventually into the CAO role, and eventually into the COO role. So when the person who first decided, who got me to be head of human capital, decided to retire, he was my mentor. He helped me move into this role. Um, and I became a bit of a utility player also for the business because my approach has been, I don't know, I will come in, I will help understand, help frame the problems, leverage the people who know more than I do, be really willing to learn, lean into the issue, and be really comfortable with the fact that I don't know everything, and that the best way for me to learn it is to ask others and lean into the discomfort and fear that has been persistent throughout my career. But taking advantage of that from that first cold call till now, leaning into that level of discomfort and saying there's an opportunity for me to learn and engage and to help try to elevate the people I'm working with so that we can get to the best outcomes. And that's really been the arc of my career, you know, that I followed this entire time. So that's my, that's my story. Um, hopefully that gives you, Brittany, enough to, to chat about. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions along the way. Hey Thriver, have you ever had that feeling like you're doing all of the things, but you're still in the same place? If you're ready to unleash your full potential and to move beyond feeling stuck, stagnant, overlooked, and overwhelmed, you're in the right place. I have an exciting tool for you called the Own Your Power Checklist, and it's the ultimate guide to helping you to own your personal power to thrive as a leader. Now, this checklist is going to help you to do four things. Number one, it's going to help you to own your unique personal power and to really weld it. It's going to help you to embrace your authenticity, to develop self-awareness, to take ownership and hold yourself accountable. And then lastly, how to trust your instincts and turn those obstacles into opportunities. I'm so excited for you to cultivate an authentic personal brand and remain resilient without it costing you your well-being. Why? Well, because now is the time. Now is the time for you to move beyond the barriers and to create new opportunities. Now is the time for you to stop being passed over and to start being recommended in rooms that you're not even in. Now is the time for you to stop feeling stuck and stagnant and to align your strengths to accelerate your growth. Now is the time for you to step into the leader that you were always meant to be. So don't miss out on this opportunity. Click the link to download the Own Your Power checklist now. Take the next step towards owning your personal power and thriving as a leader. Get your checklist today at careerthrivers.com forward slash podcast. It's your time to thrive. Awesome. I'm excited. And I know there are probably tons of questions in the room. I was jotting down a few as you were sharing because so much of it resonates. It's like she was here yesterday. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I want to pick up with you shared you had to think through it for you first when you got that tap mm -hmm. about the chief human capital. And we have actually some challenges on the back of that whiteboard. And one of them that came up in the room was like, well, how do I know what to do next? And I think that's so intentional as far as like someone senior said, hey, I think you should do this. And you said, well, hold on a minute. I need to check in and think through it for myself. Talk to us about like, what did that thought process look like? What were you going through in your head to make the decision? So first and foremost, I was flattered. Like, to be clear, I was like, what me? I'm like overwhelmed by the, by the, by the offer to have me do this. But I also had to take the deep breath and say, well, what is it that this is going to give me? Right. So when you, when I've talked about my career, every move has been, there's a skill set or something I'm looking to develop. Like how will this create a better Kate Burke leader in the long run and a recognition that it was a pivot away from this like hard charging revenue producing person that I had kind of identified with as my brand and like who I was and recognize that that leaning into the people side of it and learning how to be a better people leader um, and learning more about the organization was going to ultimately be beneficial. But I had to, I mean, I had my like pros and cons lists. I talked to people who were important to me over the course of my career. Um, I talked to my husband about it, who's always been great counsel for me in terms of helping me reflect on the decisions I've had to make along the way. And then I ultimately went with my gut. I mean, it did kind of come down to like, 
this is like when there, when the opportunity is there, even though it's slightly uncomfortable or different than you have, what is your, there's a term in business school, it's like BATNA, like what's your best alternative to the negotiated outcome or agreement, I guess is the, the agreement. But I've lot that, that business concept has applied to my life a lot where I'm like, what is the best alternative? So if I don't do this, what do I think will then happen if I don't? Like, where do I think that path is going to go? And is that path more appealing to me than the current path or this current opportunity presents? And so that intentionality of saying, you know, pros and cons, what's my alternatives? What does this mean? And it could have meant that I would have had a career in perpetuity in human capital. Like that very much was one of the endpoint. Like that was an endpoint option that I had to significantly think through and decide if that is the case, will I be satisfied and happy? Yes, was the answer at the time. Or two, will I still feel comfortable enough that I have the skill set to pivot into something else, even if it's not at AB, to, to do that? Because I've gained enough knowledge to be able to make another pivot along the way. And that ultimately is what gave me the courage to do that, where I was walking into a team of human capital practitioners who were amazingly good, to deep subject matter expertise, and I was like, hi. I'm here. Um, guess what? We're going to think about things a little differently, and I'm going to put, you know, and really have to build a lot of credibility with them that I wasn't going to blow up what they were doing, but at the same time, we were going to go through a lot of change. So you talked about, I want to lean into your consulting experience because you talked about being in the room with people that are smarter than you, which I think is such a huge takeaway for all of us when we think about like the rooms and, the, and even our personal circles. But then you talked about the skill set of listening and then being able to add value, which we've talked about and there's no shortage of like that language being thrown around, you know, how do I add value to the team? How do I do this and do that? And a lot of it has to do with like listening and understanding the priorities of the people that you're with. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that process is like when you're in the room, when you're listening, what are you listening for? What are you doing with the information? And then how can someone apply that to say, okay, now that I'm in the room with people that are smarter than me, how do I add value to this team? Okay. Oh, thanks. Um, look, so I would start that before I go into the room, I actually try to do a fair amount of preparation. Uh, so that I'm going in with an idea about what are the things that I do need to learn along the way and uh, an acknowledgement of the people in the room that they are actually subject matter experts and that I am there to learn from them. It's easy to come in with the title of COO and people will be like, I'm not you're going to come in and tell me what to do. And my view is like, I don't really tell anybody what to do. I try to help them figure out what they should do next. And so with that mindset, it was it's really about coming in with an idea of what the problem is, asking them to help articulate the problem, right? So knowing the objective up front that you're working towards, and if there's disagreement on what that is, that's actually the first learning that you're able to explore and try to understand. And then it's to understand the different priorities and the different roadblocks and the different hesitancies or fears that have stopped them from taking action thus far. And you ask those questions and people are usually pretty good at being able to articulate what have been, the, what have been those challenges that have gotten there. And sometimes just the very act of getting that off their chest and getting that onto the table is like a very first good first step of then saying, okay, you listed out these five or six things, what's the most important one to you, right? And keep trying to put it back on those that you're working with to then come in and say, here's what I'm, it, like, by going back and taking those five things and saying, these are what I heard, clarify, did I miss anything, right? Like, again, re making sure that you actually heard, and oftentimes there's nuances that then come out, because they're like, no, I didn't really mean it that way. But really, I, I talk very little in meetings. I, I really, really try to make the conversation be driven by the people I'm in the room with, and then my job is to help create that structure the in, help pull out the insights, get agreement around those insights, and then make sure we have next steps. And the next steps is incredibly important, and who's accountable for it? Because the number of times over my career we've left and been like, we're in agreement. No, we're not. Who's doing the next thing? We don't know, right? And then all of a sudden you're back in the room a week later being like, we're having the same conversation. What happened? So really getting that discipline of not leaving a room without knowing what the next action or lack of action will be. 
But an agreement on that and who's doing it and when are you gonna come back to have that conversation, that project management aspect of it is incredibly important. We st I mean, we talk at AB all the time about accountability because it's very easy to be in a room of a lot of smart people and be like, we all agree that there's a problem. Okay. <laughs> Do we agree on who's fixing it, right? Like, what are we doing? Who's taking it on? Who's taking on that work? And when are we gonna know if, what is the next milestone or checkpoint that we're gonna have to know that we're making progress or that we need to pivot to another direction. So it's not necessarily having like a year long plan or a next two months plan, but knowing the next step and a, and a, and a shared view of the preferred outcome is, is sort of the, the, pro, the, the approach I t try to take consistently. Yeah. And that's so good for not only business, like I'm sitting here and thinking, that's what we do, you know, with career thrivers, like from an entrepreneurial standpoint, like it's the same approach, but it's also the same approach in terms of your career, because I think that's what keeps so many women and professionals just in general in analysis paralysis, because you're trying to think of like, what's my five-year, 10-year plan? Who knows? Like, what is the next best career move for you and really owning that intention towards that? That's right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about the tap. We talked a little bit about the tap earlier um, and you mentioned it um, with, uh, I wrote down, I have a proposition for you. Yes, yeah, so I'm back to that, that role. And I guess the question here is, you know, as emerging women leaders, that's who's in the room today, thinking about how do you position yourself to be the obvious choice, to be the leader in the room so that those opportunities come to you where leaders are thinking about like, hey, I think this would be a really great opportunity for you. How have you done that in your career? And what would you advise this room in terms of how do you set yourself up for those opportunities to be thought of for new roles and opportunities? So one of the reasons I believe, I, I can't validate that this is why I eventually got that tap, is that the COO, um, when I would see him, and I would see him regularly in the lunchroom, and I mean, this is why I actually believe in the power of in-person yeah. And, and I do think we have to continue to evolve flexible work and all of these elements that are underway. But the power of personal relationships, I think, is really important. So I had worked with him on a project. He had gotten to know me a little bit. But I would just see him randomly, like in the lunchroom or in the hall. And he would ask me, how's business? And, or what are, what are you up to? And actually, one of my pet peeves still today is when I ask that of someone and they're like, I'm real busy. Okay, we're all real busy. Like everybody who works is real busy. That is not an answer of what you're doing. Like what I, what I would say to him is like, oh, I just had this meeting with this client. It was really interesting. He brought up this thing in the marketplace and that, you know, is AB thinking about doing that? Or my clients are really worried about this and we're spending a lot of time trying to address this problem with them. Is AB thinking about that? And so almost every conversation I had with him was directed towards business. Not how, you know, I mean, yes, we talked about family and kids and the personal side of life too, but, but if he asked me what was going on, how am I doing, what am I up to, I never gave a vague answer. I gave a very specific answer about it, which showed, I think, to him that I was interested in engaging in more than just the next sale and what AB as a firm was doing. And so that was one. Two, we were doing a lot of work around women at the time, and I was volunteered to be on our Women's Leadership Council. So I got to know actually the head of human capital in that role, had my own independent relationship with her. Um, I'm very transparent. I, I tend to, I, I've learned to speak my truth, but make sure I'm aware of when and how I'm doing it. So it's not like just whatever I want to have is like a verbal onslaught, like no framing it in my own head of like what I want to say and when I want to say it and why do I want to say it has actually been an important lesson for me along the way. Cause sometimes I've said things, I was like, oops, I mean, like I've seen the reaction on your face. That was not my intention. Let me like, let me pull that one back in and reframe that for you. But learning how to, you know, do that and lean into some of those problems that were, you know, or, or things we were trying to address and figuring out when and how to like use my voice in a way that was meaningful versus taking air. So that's another pet peeve is when I'm in a room and everyone's just, a, I'm, I'm like, I know this person's gonna say this. <laughs> like, no, like what is it that, what is it we're trying to get to? And if I don't think I'm gonna be, this is, I'm gonna say something and, and it's, it's a nuance because it's very easy to be like, I'm not. So I would also get feedback saying, you're not speaking up enough in the room. Yeah. 
right? Like you choose to have a meeting after the meeting rather than in the meeting saying what you think, Kate, you're waiting, and then you're saying something really interesting to the one person who's running it after the meeting and it would have been more valuable to use your voice in the meeting. So that was another fear and comfort level that I had to get over, which was like, was not wait and make sure I'm, you know, that I really think what I think and only share it with one person to get validation, but be more willing to put the risk out there and what I think out there and recognize that it was as valuable as what other people in the room were saying. Uh, so it's taking enough airtime, but not too much airtime. Yeah. And that's an art. And that's knowing the room and knowing the people and knowing the problem, but also knowing that you have a voice that is valid and have, has a different perspective. And if no one is sharing your views at the table, get really comfortable learning how to share them. In a, again, constructive, validating kind of way to, that helps move the conversation forward. Fantastic. So we are coming to you all after this next question. So get your questions ready and we'll we'll run the mic. So you you mentioned some of the work and Alliance Bernstein has, is doing some incredible work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I know Janessa and Brynn and that entire team, they're incredible. Can you talk a little bit about just the priority and the perspective of advancing women leaders, particularly as you mentioned within a male-dominated industry? Look, it's a... Um it's a challenge and we have made progress, but we've also, this pandemic has been really challenging in setting us back there. I, I don't need to well, remind everyone of all the literature that was written about the inequity of the work in the home and how that had, had a um, unfair, that was challenging for many women to be able to learn how to manage, try to manage both and take on multiple priorities in that. Um, so it's been harder that I'm, I will be honest in saying I am disappointed that we don't have more. And when we lose senior women, I don't mind as much losing them to other um, competitors. I know that sounds weird because you should be like, I don't want to ever. I, the truth is I never want to lose anyone who I think is good. And so I get really competitive when we do. But, um, but I feel better when they choose to go somewhere else because I'm like, you're in the game still. What I don't like is when we lose women who say, I'm out of the game and I'm gonna take a break or I'm pivoting into something very different because then I keep thinking to myself, we need to learn how to rethink how we work in a way to create other kinds of jobs and other kinds of ways of keeping women engaged in the workforce through those moments. I, I mean, I had four children, three of the four while working at AB. And I was um, intentional, but never said it. When I had them, like, I, there were times I said no to projects. And I was like, I hope this isn't a career killer, but, like, I got a new baby at home. I'm not taking on that 6 a.m. morning meeting. Like, that's not going to work. And there were times people were like, I cannot believe you didn't say yes to that. But I was like, I, I am trying to, like, live my life in a way that is good for me and I need I need to figure out how much I can lean in and lean out. I, you know, I know Cheryl Sandberg gets some grief about her lean yeah. in, lean out book, but to me, part of that resonated because I did lean out. I worked, I didn't leave, but I there were periods where I was like, I am going to go with the B plus Kate, not the A plus Kate <laughs> right now and be okay with that and say no to things or do that. And we don't create an environment that is comfortable for women to be able to do that. Um, and so we lose women who say, I can't be A plus Kate, and I, and I don't have a window to be a B plus, so I'm just going to go, and I'll get myself back in, or I'll make a different choice. I don't know how to solve it. It's been really, it's frustrating because, you know, so much of the culture is about productivity and results, or, we are a results-oriented organization. So how do you manage and say your, your results can be not this, it will give you a different milestone or marker? And be and, and manage and be accountable for that versus it happening sort of by circumstance. And I was just fortunate that my B plus gate was pretty good so that I was able to stay pretty competitive with the other people around me. Um, and then when I and my children all spread out by three years and that was some intentionality, too. I had them, got back in the game, got my next, you know, progress another kid. And then someone would be like, you've been pregnant the entire time you've worked here. And I'm like, no, I've been here 10 years. That is physically not possible. <laughs> but, but, you know, but living through those kind of moments, right? And being like, what it, yep, and what is the, what is, what is, what does that mean? Why does that matter? And getting really much more comfortable in talking about what I've delivered and what I've, what my outcomes have been and less about 
what I've tried to balance on the personal side. Yeah, that's anyone else find that helpful? Very helpful because I'm, I'm I know that uh, what's the other phrase? Quiet quitting. Oh, I hate that phrase. <sighs> I know people are doing it. And it's oh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, that was a tough one, particularly to the DEI work because it's like, well, if you look at the data on who's doing the extra work, particularly around culture, it is diverse talent. It's women, it's professionals of color. So like, if you look at it from an equity standpoint, a lot of more of that work is falling on a certain subset. So is it a quiet quitting problem or is it an inclusion? It's an inclusion. Opportunity. I think it's an inclusion opportunity. And I think it's about recognizing more explicitly, explicitly the value of that work. Um, and that there, it, it is something that is meaningful to the broader organization and enterprise and that that diversity of thought um, and the inclusion of, of different views is a really critical aspect because I can tell you for certain that our clients are diverse uh, and that we need to be able to understand multiple perspectives in making those kinds of decisions. Um, but the quietly quitting phenomenon is not... Is I don't think a gender necessarily issue. I think that this this is something in the pandemic, where people, if you were if you remained employed during it, it was not a great. You know, everyone now will say, "Oh, we, but we made it through." And I'm like, "But at what cost?" Yes, like you did you did make it through, and you like the flexibility aspect of it. But even during the pandemic, you didn't you had flexibility in that you were home, but you were always working. Yeah. Now we're trying to figure out a flexibility model that enables you to like have the focus and the intentionality around your work in the time that is most productive for the firm and for you in terms of learning and progressing, while at the same time giving you enough leeway to get to a better equilibrium than we, than we were at, for sure. And it's just, it's, we're not there yet. I mean, that's the, we're trying to figure it out still, and, and we're gonna, it's going to take time. Yeah, someone in the room shared yesterday, um, how do you handle one of the challenges on the board is inheriting additional responsibilities without compensation? <laughs> well, that's also been the hallmark of my career. I, I mean, like, I would say, like, <laughs> you got to do, I mean, like, I do have a view, like, I've always done the job before I've gotten the job, yep. right? I didn't say, before I take that on, I want to know exactly what I'm going to get paid and what, how are you going to compensate me for it? I've said, I'm going to do the job, I see the need, and I'm going to start doing it. And when you make me the manager of a sales team, it's because I already had taken on the work of running the schedules and doing the, you know, the collective work that needed to be done. And so it became obvious that I was going to get the role. Once I got the role, I did the work, and then I was like, and now you got to pay me for it, yeah. right? And you do have to... you do have to advocate for yourself on compensation and, and recognition of, you know, are you, if, as you've taken on more, is your compensation following it? But I don't think you should always believe your compensation is going to lead it, yeah. Yeah. right? And that's an important differential, too, to just be aware of. Because you can, you know, if you ask for too much, then the bar of what you have to, if you ask for a certain level of compensation, then the bar is set of what you have to deliver. And then when you don't, then all of a sudden, oh, why is she not progressing the way we thought she was going to? Well, like, you know, kind of manage manage those expectations along the way, but certainly self-advocate. Yeah. What questions do you all have? Thank you for sharing your story. My question would be walking into a room knowing that you're going to be one of the minority, especially the higher you climbed in your career. How did you handle that, especially if you walked into a room and you kind of got that face like, I don't, there have not been many moments where I would say I got like the face of, oh, Kate's, you know, females entering the room. I would say that, that there was a, a inner reflection that I would need to do before I went in the room, knowing, I mean, I, I used to do the Wonder Woman pose in the bathroom. Like if I knew I was going into a tough meeting, like that was again, one of those little quips that I was like, I can use that, right? Where I would know I was going into a tough meeting, usually with a male counterpart or a group of men, uh, and that I would be often the sole female. And there are times, sure, that I, I felt like, are they talking over me? Or am I getting ganged up on? Are they, or my idea, I would say it, and then someone else would re-articulate it, and they'd be like, brilliant. And I'd be like, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> um, and it, but what, that was part of the power, like the power pose was saying, I'm gonna go in, and I'm gonna bring the full power of myself into the room and know that I deserve to be in this seat and that in the end, they're just 
men, women, whatever. I mean, they're just there. They're like, they're just there too. And they think that they know more, but do they? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, and so it was really just honestly, it was a, a competitive, like I am a competitive, I played high school sports and stuff. Like I have some inner competition. And when I would leave a meeting and be like, I got outshone by someone or I didn't like say something or I had an idea, but someone got to it first and said it, I would, so I have a ritual at the beginning of every day in my car ride. It's actually a quiet car ride. I don't listen to music. And I think about the meetings that I have ahead of me. And my day is mostly meetings. Um, and what are the most important ones? Who's going to be in the room? And what are we trying to, like, what do I need to bring to the table to get it forward? And then at the end of the day, I use my drive home to say, and how did I do? Did I, did I deliver against my self-expectations today? Did I miss an opportunity to be more additive because of whatever was holding me back. I was tired or I was intimidated or whatever the answer was and be like, how do I not let that happen again? And so it's, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self-reflection, preparation and self-reflection that I do on a daily basis that um, I think makes me better the next time I'm in the room where I'm going to be, you know, the only woman I've met, I'm meeting the men for the first time, I don't know them all, like, how do I bring my game? And, and be very conscious that that is what I'm bringing, is like my game into the room, and there's a reason I'm there. I have a question about, you talked about your managers along the way, mm -hmm. and your relationship with them. Did you ever experience a situation where you did not agree with your manager in how they all were all the time and 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 I would love for you to tell us about you know how did you manage that with knowing that you know if you speak up to your manager you can potentially get to their bad side and yeah I mean look I think this is what I was attempting to convey earlier which is about how is it constructive like how are you conveying something in a constructive manner and also recognition that once I've conveyed the information and I know that they've heard it, if they disagree with me, I also have to live with it. Like I can't, like there's so, you know, beating, you know, beating the same drum that you're like, I've heard that drum before, it doesn't make it any more or less true than it was the first time you said it. If the facts have changed, if there's something else that is additive to your argument, by all means, bring it back up. But if a decision has been made and I've been on the right side of decisions and I've been on the wrong side of decisions where what I wanted and was advocating for wasn't the right choice in the end and that the path we took was better. So, um, so being comfortable saying it, but then also being comfortable saying I'm backing you as my manager in the end and that the path forward that you're taking, I'm going to make myself fully, like if that's what we've chosen, I'm gonna work towards making that the outcome. And I may think that my plan B is better, but we're going with plan A. And so that's what I'm going to put all my energy into doing versus trying to keep getting them to convert to plan B. Because that's exhausting. And that's, a, that's a, usually a waste of energy on all parties involved because you're not then making any progress because you're continuing to debate that next step or, or putting up roadblocks when what I really want or what my managers wanted out of me was like how to lay the path smooth. Like, get rid of the roadblocks for me. Don't create more. So you can disagree. I mean, I, we disagree all the time at work about, like, things we should do. But we always, in the end, when we leave our one of our leadership meetings, we always say we are in agreement on the path forward. And we are all going to put our own weight behind getting it done. And we can bring it back up in this group occasionally if we think there's things we need to revisit and have our checks, check marks. But... Go out and get it done. Thank you so much for sharing. It's always really exciting to hear about other women in the workforce and especially women that are in the game and have beaten the game. Um, my question is, I'll be a first-time personal leader this summer. I have an intern coming. Um, I love the piece that you mentioned about getting to know the person first. Do you have any additional advice for someone as a first-time leader? Look, I think that there – I would – do a healthy dose of reflection, like regularly on how how did I not how did the person do for me, but how did I do for the person, right? On, on a regular basis, um, asking them for feedback along along the way. I think 
an important part of a first-time leadership is, and for particularly someone, I don't know if it's someone who's new to the workforce you have or someone who um, is like similar experience, but but either way, setting out a, um, some clear objectives and an understanding of what success looks like is such a gift for the person that's working for you because then they're not sitting there wondering like, am I doing a good job or not? Like, am I making progress against the things that are important? It takes a lot of time to actually, like you will be shocked as a first time manager, the amount of time it takes to manage someone if you're gonna do it well. And I think people underestimate that all the time. But if you do it right in the beginning, that's when you start to get that multiplier effect because then you actually do have that extra set of hands and brain working on something on your behalf to get to an, an outcome. But if you don't do the time up front to lay it out, and, and the steps that they need to take, they flounder, you're frustrated, and then you're wondering why it's not, why it's not working. You know, it's, sometimes it is the person, but oftentimes it's the manager. I, I found myself, and over time, when I'm really honest about why we didn't make more progress, it's like because I didn't give the clarity of what needed to be done and, and didn't give them real-time feedback when they did it really well and real-time feedback when they actually didn't hit the mark. And, building that relationship so that they hear you. Like if you're only ever telling people like what they did wrong, they're gonna stop respecting you and they're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, noise. And like they stop, they literally stop listening to you and then you're done. So build the relationship, establish trust, give feedback and have a clear, clear plan that you're gonna be measuring against them so that they have confidence and clarity of what they're doing. Wow, I don't know about you, but I am definitely inspired learning about Kate's story and really just hearing how she owned her power, trusted her instincts to really lean into those small pivots that have now led her to be where she is today in not one, but holding two C-suite positions inside of Alliance Bernstein. What small pivots can you make to thrive as a leader in your career? Until next time. See you on the next episode and let's thrive together. And that's a wrap on today's episode, Thrivers. Remember, the power to thrive is in your hands. You have the strength, the patience, the passion, and the brilliance to reach for your next level and to seize it. Never forget that you are not alone on this journey. Together, we will learn, grow, and make strides to lead well. I'm Brittany and Cole reminding you to trust your instincts, to honor your strengths, to embrace those opportunities, and to own your power. Remember, download the Own Your Power checklist to keep you on track with your growth over at careerthrivers.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Career Thrivers podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode. And until next time, as we break boundaries and own our power, let's thrive together. Thank you.